History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 95, The Holy Trinity. Did I put that episode title right after two episodes of talking about the history of Judaism on purpose? Yes, I did. I thought it would be eye-catching. But this episode has nothing to do with Judaism, Christianity, or the wild debates Christians have had for 2,000 years about the nature of God. When you don't pronounce the E, the year in our narrative is 360 before Christ. Nobody has ever heard of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Today, we're talking about a different group of three divine beings. Now to get into the technical stuff. I've tossed around the words trinity and triumvirate when talking about this idea before, but ultimately, neither is correct. Trinity implies three that are one. Tri-unity. Great for mainstream Nicene Christianity, but not really here. Triumvirate is literally the organization of three men. Not only is that incorrect in the sense that our topic is composed of divinities above the likes of mortals, but also in the sense of gender. One of our three is a feminine yazada, or goddess, which is probably more accurate in this context regardless of actual Zoroastrian theology. In the reign of Artaxerxes II, new names began appearing in familiar formula included in Old Persian inscriptions from Susa, Persepolis, and Ecbatana. When the new king oversaw the reconstruction of the Apadana halls at Susa and Ecbatana, 
he had this inscribed on several column bases. By the grace of Ahura Mazda, Anahita, and Mithra, I have reconstructed this Apadana. May Ahura Mazda, Anahita, and Mithra protect me against all evil, and may they never destroy nor damage what I have built. Compare that to a similar inscription from Xerxes at Persepolis. The great king Xerxes says, By the grace of Ahura Mazda, I built this palace. May Ahura Mazda and the gods protect me, my kingdom, and what I did. Or to these two inscriptions from Darius the Great on the walls of his palace at Susa. Darius the king says, By the grace of Ahura Mazda, I built something excellent here at Susa. And King Darius says, By the grace of Ahura Mazda, I have made this. May it seem excellent to everyone. Never before had official Achaemenid monuments and inscriptions invoked any gods beside the great creator Ahura Mazda, at least not by name. He alone was the grand patron of the dynasty, and he alone bestowed the Kavarena, the divine right of kingship. Yet suddenly, without any explanation, two new names appear alongside the wise lord in Artaxerxes' inscriptions, the Azadas, Mithra, and Anahita, the god of good pastures, horses, and war against the forces of evil, and the goddess of purifying waters, love, sex, and protection from corrupting spirits. Even though we do not have any explicit explanation for this change, or even any outside sources commenting on it, it's a clear theological shift from earlier generations. In fact, Greek accounts portray both Mithra and Anahita as fairly important Persian gods much earlier than Artaxerxes II's reign, and even closely associate the two with one another. Herodotus even seems to merge them together a century before our current narrative, describing a goddess called Mithra as very similar to Anahita's actual role. So what to make of it? If you're listening to episode 95 and need further explanation of who Ahura Mazda is, you are probably in the wrong place. Maybe go back to episodes 12, 21, 43, and 44 if you don't want to start from the very beginning. If you're the type of listener who skips extra episodes, announcements, and the like because they are not officially numbered, I don't blame you, but go back to the 2022 holiday special for more information about Mithra, because I am going to refer back to that a lot. Basically, I think everyone should be relatively familiar with the masculine divinities in our newfound triad, but I haven't talked a whole lot about Anahita yet, because I was saving her for this episode. Anahita is potentially the Yazada with the strangest discrepancy between her origins and her actual role in historical Zoroastrianism. By way of comparison to the Vedic gods over in India, 
and some references in older parts of the Avesta, it seems that clean waters were initially associated with a masculine Yazada called Aban, literally, the waters. However, by the time the Aban Yasht was composed sometime in the early or possibly just before the Achaemenid period, the Hymn of Waters was dedicated to a feminine Yazada with the title Aredvi Sura Anahita. As always with this sort of thing, it is not overwhelmingly clear where or when the names of gods became distinct from their titles, but Aredvi Sura Anahita follows a pretty standard format of Avestan epithets describing a deity. The full phrase means wet, powerful, pure, all in their adjectival forms, suggesting that it was intended to describe a divinity whose name is not in the text. And by the time the Abanyasht was composed, Anahita may already have displaced the original name, because the hymn also refers to her as just Aredvi Anahita, meaning that the whole epithet wasn't required. Some scholars have suggested that her original name might have been Harakvaiti, which is also the Avestan name for the region of Ericosia, literally meaning rich in fresh water. It is etymologically related to both the title Sura and the Vedic goddess who represented a similar concept named Saredvi. It is long, so I won't read the whole thing, but the Aban Yasht is a largely legendary Yasht, describing Anahita's role in the cosmos and her interactions with great heroes. It actually makes understanding her initial role in the religion fairly straightforward, unlike many of the other Yashts. Initially, Anahita, she who is wet, powerful, and pure, was distinct from the more mundane Aban. He was simply the patron of good waters, i.e. the potable water encountered in daily life. Instead, Anahita is the holy wellspring, the physical source of the good waters, a single mythical starting point for every river and lake in the world. Over time, the distinction between the two fell away. After all, if Aban merely governed the water that flows from Anahita, wasn't he just an extension of the wet, powerful, and pure goddess herself? Ahura Mazda created her to act as an eternal font of purity in the world, and it is Anahita's purity that allows water to act as an agent of ritual cleaning when a person was contaminated by dead matter or bodily fluids associated with the daiva. However, that purification doesn't stop at good old H2O flowing over the earth. Zoroastrianism especially ancient Zoroastrianism as portrayed in the Vendidad, holds that almost every form of human or animal waste and bodily fluid is unclean the second it leaves your body. That's everything from loose hairs to nail clippings to blood, spit, urine, and even semen. 
that last point naturally raises something of a problem. If semen is unclean at the moment of ejaculation, then how do you reproduce? Nowhere in Zoroastrianism do Ahura Mazda and his Yazadas advocate for ascetic abstinence. Instead, this ties back to my discussion of masturbation and male homosexuality as sins in the Vendidad from episode 60, Given Against the Demons. According to the ancient law code, any male ejaculation that was not procreative was an unforgivable sin, in part because semen was ritually unclean. But the Aban Yasht opens with this invocation. It's the first thing after the pre-formatted opening prayers. Ahura Mazda spoke to Spitama Zarathustra, saying, Offer up a sacrifice, O Spitama Zarathustra, unto this spring of mine, Oredvi Sura Anahita, the wide-expanding and health-giving one who hates the Daivas and obeys the laws of Ahura. She who is worthy of sacrifice in the material world, worthy of prayer in the material world, the life-increasing and holy, the herd-increasing and holy, the fold-increasing and holy, the wealth-increasing and holy, the country-increasing and holy. She who makes the seed of all males pure, who makes the womb of all females pure for bringing forth, who makes all females bring forth in safety, who puts milk into the breasts of all females in the right measure and the right duality. Anahita's, uh, waters purify the act of procreative sex and all the bodily fluids involved in giving birth and rearing children in both humans and animals. It's actually one of the reasons I chose to keep the original translation's use of females instead of women. It covers all female creatures. Which, coincidentally, also explains why dairy products are ritually clean. By extension, Anahita takes on the role of a sort of Mother Earth, or maybe Mother Water. Not only is she the Yazada of Purity but also sex and motherhood. As if that wasn't enough, the next section of the Yasht actually further heightens Aredvisura Anahita's importance. Anahita herself asks who will offer sacrifices to her, who will drive her chariot, who will stand by her side against the Daiva that seek to corrupt her waters. Naturally, Ahura Mazda commands Zoroaster himself to make offerings to the Yazada, but only by following the creator god's own example. Ahura Mazda himself offered sacrifices to Anahita to request a gift from her, that gift being the ability to grant his revelation to the prophet Zoroaster by sending Vohumana, the Amesha Spenta, through one of Anahita's lakes. The supreme deity had to make sacrifices and get Anahita's permission. She's a big deal. 
And it's not just Mazda's example that Zoroaster and his disciples were supposed to follow. That prophet was just following in the footsteps of all the great heroes of old. Seemingly every mortal hero of the Zoroastrian tradition beseeched Anahita for her blessing or her aid in their adventures and battles. As such, she is not just the goddess of purity, sex, and motherhood, but also a goddess of heroes. And that really sets the stage for Anahita's further development under the Achaemenids. Much like Mithra merging roles with the Mesopotamian god Shamash and the Elamite in Shushanak, Anahita became identified with foreign gods as the Iranians came into contact with more and more diverse pantheons from Elam to Greece. However, unlike Mithra, who found specific similarities with specific and distinct gods in different places, Anahita entered into a strange continuum of similar goddesses that spanned the breadth of Western Eurasia, from the Celts of Iberia all the way to India. While the shared mythology of Indo-European languages helped with this, it is not a uniquely Indo-European phenomenon. Instead, it was easily incorporated into the Semitic and Egyptian pantheons as well. Anahita also proved to be the missing link that tied several goddesses who had successfully escaped absorption and association into this continuum for millennia. Again, she's a big deal. This sort of over-goddess concept went by many names. In Rome, she was Venus. In Carthage, she was Tanit. To the Greeks, it was Aphrodite while the Phoenicians and other Western Semitic people had Astarte, who almost certainly shared her roots with the Eastern Semitic Ishtar, patroness of the Bronze Age city of Akkad as well as Assyria and Babylon. The Elamites matched this goddess with the concept of Nerundi. The interesting thing is the influence of Mesopotamian Ishtar's more martial aspect. In the early Bronze Age, she was the Akkadian goddess of both love and war. For the Akkadians, that probably seemed relatively straightforward. The things that make your passions run hot. However, when they conquered the ancient lands of Sumer, there wasn't actually a one-to-one comparison. In fact, most cultures didn't have a direct one-to-one for Ishtar, because love and war are often seen as opposite of one another. Associated, yes, but not served by the same patron goddess. There wasn't really a Sumerian war goddess, though, so Ishtar was matched up with Inanna, the goddess of love. Over time, the ideas behind Ishtar functionally replaced Inanna completely. That had some weird consequences in Bronze Age Elam. The goddess Narundi was a pretty prototypical love goddess, associated with motherhood and pregnancy. Specifically, protection and success 
against the struggles involved with giving birth. She was identified with Sumer's Inanna very, very early in recorded history. When the Akkadians conquered Sumer, they also overran Elam, leading to an influx of Mesopotamian influence in southern Iran, like the use of cuneiform, something that we are still working with at this point in the story. It also introduced Ishtar's militant aspect. Ironically, the Elamites had another goddess, Karirisha, who actually was a war goddess. But since Ishtar was Inanna, and Inanna was Narundi, Narundi took on some of Ishtar's violent aspects as well, with protection and success on the birthing bed evolving into protection and success in all things, including battle. Kiririsha, meanwhile, remained a distinct war goddess and a member of Elam's divine triad alongside the underworld king in Shushanak and her mythological consort, Nipirisha, the god of creation and primordial waters. I discussed this triad in the Maragon Holiday Special when I talked about how Mithra was identified with in Shushanak as a god of oaths, judgment, and leadership. As the creator of the world, Nipirisha was an obvious match for Ahura Mazda, especially since Inshushinak wasn't really treated as king of the gods anymore by the Persian period. That left Kiririsha. There are plenty of Zoroastrian divinities that could fit, arguably some who fit better as the divine consort of the creator and goddess of war. However, Anahita shared something unique with Kiririsha. They both governed the waters of creation and purity, and given her immense importance to Iranian spirituality, it was convenient to identify Anahita with a goddess of similar importance and similar roles in Elam. But even then, there's a whole extra layer. In Mesopotamia, Anahita was connected to Ishtar. Love, sex, and motherhood are all pretty obvious spheres to connect. But those aspects alone actually might not have secured the Ishtar connection there was another Mesopotamian candidate, the goddess Nanaya, despite being nearly identical to Inanna, remained a distinct deity well into the Iron Age. But remember, Anahita is also the Yazada that great heroes called upon for their adventures. She started with a martial aspect, which made her an easy match for Ishtar and all of Ishtar's western comparisons, most famously the Greek Aphrodite and Roman Venus, but to really keep track of her in Greek histories gets more complicated. Anahita is routinely identified with three goddesses in Greek records, Aphrodite of love and sex, Artemis, goddess of the wilderness, alongside both virginity and childbirth, and Athena, the goddess of wisdom and warfare. You can kind of see where all three of those comparisons fit in. 
Greece didn't have a good one-to-one with Ishtar and Anahita. Aphrodite was just the most common point of comparison, possibly because she actually shared some common root in Phoenician religion with goddesses like Astarte, who further on became Ishtar, who further on became Narundi, and so on. But I'm getting out of order. We need to jump back to the Bronze Age one more time. That other Mesopotamian goddess, Nanaya, was also introduced to the Elamites shortly after their contact with the Akkadian Empire. Unlike her native Mesopotamia, Elam did identify Nanaya with Narundi, and by extension, Ishtar. Nanaya was incredibly popular in Elam, but also so heavily connected with Narundi that their names became interchangeable over time, and Nanaya eventually won out. So Nanaya is Narundi, who is Inanna, who is Ishtar. And even though there was never a connection between Mesopotamia's Nanaya and Ishtar, the Elamites made one of their own. So by the Achaemenid period, you've got this weird mix where Anahita is matched with Kiririsha's cosmological and political function in Iran, but with Ishtar's social function in Mesopotamia. Ishtar is matched with Nanaya in Elam as well. This was probably just as confusing back then as it is now, because eventually Anahita was identified with Nanaya too. In fact, the two were so completely assimilated into one another that once again the names became interchangeable, and the name Nania actually wound up the more popular variant all the way in Bactria. It's a mess. Now, I do hope everyone enjoyed that preamble. I'm gonna throw in an ad break here because I suspect everyone could use a bit of a breather before totally shifting gears. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. 
Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Okay, so now that we've got all the comparative mythology out of the way, let's turn to the Achaemenids themselves. What does any of this have to do with those inscriptions I read 30-ish minutes ago? Absolutely everything. Not only was Anahita a divinity of paramount importance in Zoroastrianism, but she was connected to two of the most prominent Elamite goddesses, Nanaya and Karirisha, and the most popular Babylonian goddess, Ishtar. She became a giant melting pot of influences pulling aspects from four of the most important divinities across three cultures. Then you add that mixture into the cosmopolitan supercity of Babylon, and on top of that, why don't you pour it into the minds of a couple of half-Babylonian and half-Achaemenid princes and princesses living in that cosmopolitan supercity? Aside from some encyclopedic texts for simplifying theology across cultures, and maybe the connection to Karirisha in Iran, these sorts of mythological comparisons were not top-down projects. They developed through extensive cultural interaction over the course of centuries. Anahita, Mithra, and Ahura Mazda, along with many of their fellow Zoroastrian divinities, probably began that process shortly after the first Iranian peoples established regular interaction with Assyria in the 9th or 10th centuries BC. By the reign of Artaxerxes I, these comparisons were well established. Or perhaps they were formalized because of the first Artaxerxes and his family. If you cast your minds back to episode 69, Musical Thrones, you should remember that Darius II, Parisatis, and most of their siblings were the children of the great king with various Babylonian concubines. Doubtlessly, they all took on some cultural influences from their mothers, and nowhere is this more apparent than in the preferred lifestyle of Parisatis and Darius II, back when he was just Ocus, and they were raising their only son, the future Artaxerxes II. 
They preferred to live in Babylon as often as possible, renting a house from the Murashu and investing heavily in local estates and business ventures. Perisatis lived there almost full-time, and Prince Ocus seems to have tried to spend as little time in his actual satrapy of Hyrcania as he could. Consequently, Artaxerxes and his sister Amestris were raised in that environment, the products of half-Babylonian but half-Iranian family living in Babylon itself. While the Persians were widely noted for their lack of temples and idols, Babylon was overflowing with them. While the great kings of generations past praised Ahura Mazda and only rarely acknowledged a vague set of other gods who are, these young royals' own Babylonian relatives and even the local satrap and other members of the Iranian immigrant elite offered praise to a vast host of deities before dazzling idols in magnificent temples. And then, over the 24 years of Darius II's reign, we start to see a shift in Persian nomenclature and references in Greek literature. References to temples for Persian gods became more common. Sculptures of deities in Persian styles crop up in Anatolia and Cyprus. The Greeks start referencing Mithra more often, both as a god in Persian oaths and curses, but also as a component of Persian names. Think about it. How many Mithra Blankies type names did we have in the first 70 episodes of the podcast? One or two, maybe? How many since then? I think there was one recently where four of them were on the same page of my script. The importance of Mithra and Anahita doesn't actually emerge out of nowhere in Artaxerxes II's building projects. He just finally elevated them officially to the forefront of royal messaging. Instead, they were the product of two of the most important Iranian divinities synchronizing with some of the most important gods of two more stereotypically polytheistic cultures, which just so happened to be the two most influential groups on Achaemenid Persian culture itself. The simple proximity to Elam made that inevitable, given that Persia itself was still only 250 years removed from being Elamite territory. Mesopotamian wealth and decadence was always appealing and influential, but then two successive great kings were half Babylonian, further accelerating the foreign religious influence at court. Purely within the sphere of royal ideology, it makes the most sense to compare Ahura Mazda, Mithra, and Anahita to the Elamite triad of Nipirisha in Shushanak and Kiririsha. Unfortunately, we just don't know enough about Elamite religion to nail anything down, and changes in Elamite belief during the early Iron Age further complicate things. 
from about 2100 to 900 BCE, and Shushanak was king of the gods and god of Elamite kings. However, both before and after that period, a different god named Humban held that position. And Shushanak was still king of the underworld, and was not displaced from the triad. Humban just sort of appended off to the side as his own separate thing. In fact, there's not even much evidence for the Elamite royal triad in the Bronze Age at all. It seems to be a relatively late development. Despite all this, the trio of deities we've been discussing were still relatively close to Elamite royalty and regularly invoked by the kings of Susa and Anshan in their personal proclamations. Artaxerxes II, and probably many of his predecessors, might have embraced the Elamite gods themselves or their Iranian counterparts in a similar role. This is probably exemplified by the coronation ritual described by Plutarch, where the temple of a warlike goddess usually understood as Anahita, is described as the setting for the Achaemenid coronation ceremony. However, Anahita's warlike aspect was greatly enhanced by her connection with Ishtar and Kiririsha, while the rest of the ceremony is apparently rooted in much older nomadic Iranian tradition. The setting is also described as inside a sanctuary, while early Achaemenid religion had no such structures. It is possible that Cyrus the Great, or Cambyses, as kings of Anshan, assimilated some royal Elamite traditions around the divine triad into their existing Iranian ceremony. The counterpoint to this is, of course, total lack of evidence outside of Plutarch and the similarities between a building traditionally interpreted as a fortification at Pasargadai, and a later Parthian temple nearby. Despite frequent references to ceremonies celebrating specific gods in the Persepolis archive tablets from Darius I down to Artaxerxes I, neither Mithra nor Anahita are called by name, and neither are their Elamite counterparts. However, both Ahura Mazda and Elamite Napirisha, Mazda's counterpart in the triad, were very popular in the archive records. That said, there are also festivals referenced that celebrate multiple unspecified deities, so there is room for argument. By the end of Darius II's reign, that was clearly changing. Across the empire, especially in places with larger Iranian populations like eastern Anatolia, and in written sources, the 4th century BCE was a period of increasing use of physical idols and covered temples by Zoroastrians. While the exact details shifted around, both idolatry and temple worship became fixtures of Zoroastrian practice. Interestingly, writing shortly after Artaxerxes' reign, the lost historian Danon claimed that the Persians held no idols other than fire and water. 
We can see that this was not entirely true in both archaeological and historical evidence, but it does indicate that the shift was gradual. Fire and water are specifically interesting. Water is obviously Anahita's element, while fire is associated with several Yazadas, Ahura Mazda and Mithra themselves by far being the most prominent. Cyrus the Younger actually seems to have played an important role here. Though not raised as exclusively in Babylon as his older siblings, he was still a product of his family, especially Parasatis. And the Roman historian Tacitus credits him with introducing the cult of a goddess referred to as Persian Artemis by building a temple in her honor at Sardis. Persian Artemis was a very popular goddess in the Hellenistic and Roman periods and routinely identified as Anahita in both ancient and modern scholarship. In the early 3rd century BC, the Babylonian historian Berossus recorded that Persian court records credited Artaxerxes II with the construction of many temples to Anahita in Babylon, Susa, Ecbatana, Persepolis, Bactra, Damascus, and Sardis. Assuming Berossus didn't mix up which Artaxerxes he was talking about, it certainly seems like a concerted effort to both elevate Anahita and spread temple worship to the Iranian parts of the empire, where outdoor altars still dominated daily practice. Finally, an interesting inscription from Sardis may even suggest that Ahura Mazda himself was honored with an idol in the western province. In 365 BCE, quote, Droaphernes, son of Barakis, a hypark of Lydia, dedicated the statue of Zeus of Bagadates. All of those names, besides Zeus, are clearly Iranian. Since it was common practice to translate the names of gods to their local equivalents, it is entirely possible that Zeus of Bagadates was a local cult name for Ahura Mazda. It may also just have been a local variant of Greek Zeus, but even a Persianized Zeus would struggle to remain wholly distinct from Ahura Mazda. Eventually, the Sassanid Persians of the 3rd and 4th centuries CE began pushing against idols, but temples remained and still remain today. The famed Zoroastrian Fire Temple. Of course, Ahura Mazda always remained the greatest and most important creator god, and Mithra and Anahita had already been important before the second set of Darius and Artaxerxes. However, they leaped ahead in this period and remained a divine triad of sorts long after other Elamite influences had faded away. Interestingly, Anahita actually fell by the wayside pretty quickly. She was left out of Artaxerxes III's inscriptions, where he gives praise to Ahura Mazda and Mithra alone. Maybe he was divinely sexist, or maybe he was trying to rein in the most Babylonian elements of his predecessor's religious policy. 
A great deal of Anahita's general popularity came from her connection to Ishtar and Nanaya, and their ceremonies rather than the actual Iranian aspects of her tradition, regardless of theologic importance. It's also possible that Artaxerxes II just had greater personal devotion to Anahita than his successor. His early life in Babylon would have given him much greater exposure to the immense popularity of Ishtar Anahita. Babylon was also a defining moment of his life with the Battle of Canaxa, which was really a follow-up to the story of Cyrus the Younger planning to assassinate him inside Anahita's sanctuary, only for Artaxerxes to be saved at the last moment. You can kind of see how that guy might develop a personal affiliation with this goddess if it starts feeling like she keeps saving him. Whatever the case, Anahita recovered her place in royal ideology pretty easily once the Achaemenids were gone. Various sources from the Hellenistic period reference temples of Anahita as sources of great wealth that prompted the descendants of the Persians and Elamites alike to react violently when they were plundered by Greek kings. However, the aforementioned Sassanids were probably the most significant example of Anahita's lasting importance. Though they were proper Zoroastrians and praised Ahura Mazda above all else, the last great Zoroastrian dynasty arguably owed everything they had to Anahita more than anyone. In the 3rd century CE, the noble house of Sasan were just the hereditary priests of Anahita's fire temple in Istakhar, a small city just up the road from the towering ruins of a grand palace. By then, they believed it was the ancient home of Jamshid, the first mortal king. After all, who else could have leveled a huge platform into the side of a mountain, erected gargantuan halls filled with columns, topped with rearing bowls? Who else could have carved out stairs, easily mounted by horsemen to ride through a beautiful gateway, guarded by fearsome winged beasts? Or lived in not one but three interconnected palaces featuring reliefs of all the people of the world, offering gifts to their king, garbed in strange and ancient robes. Of course, this city was Persepolis. And though the heart of Persian political and religious life migrated slightly to the north, the core was still there. The Sassanids were both priests and rulers in Istakhar. And when their Parthian overlords were in turmoil, one of these priests of Anahita seized the opportunity to make himself king of Persia, and within a generation, they were the kings of kings. Anahita made them a big deal. The Sassanids are still more than 600 years away. For now, it's time to turn back to the 4th century BCE, and begin the reign of our next king with the ascension of Prince Ochus II. 
Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.